Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Chris Joy. Many of you will recall and know Chris Joy as the co-investment officer of Coolabar Capital Smarter Money, as well as being a well-known, regarded contributor to the Australian Financial Review. Now, I must point out before we kick off that this was recorded in very late April. So unfortunately, it's a little bit dated and some of the things that Chris talks about are relatively time sensitive and some of those things you just need to adjust in your thinking that this was recorded right at the end of April. He talks about some of the speed bumps that we're facing into with rising inflation and interest rates. Uh, Chris talks about where people can think about hiding and what sort of assets. He talks specifically about private debt as not being a bad place. Chris talks about how their forecast of the RBA raising rates of around 100 basis points to 125 basis points or 1% or just over, they believe will lead to the biggest decline in Australian residential housing prices on record of 15 to 25%. I think there's probably already some evidence of that being well underway. Chris also talks about geopolitics, Ukraine and Russia, the fact that they're actually advertising for Ukrainian data scientists I thought was pretty interesting. But he also talks importantly about their outlook for the geopolitical uh, situation in our Pacific area and more broadly with China uh, and relations with the US. I think it's a really far wide ranging conversation that I really enjoyed and just uh, never ceases to impress me the depth of Chris's intellect, uh, which I'm sure you'll agree with. Please enjoy the podcast. Remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com and remember to listen to the, the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Chris Joy, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Hi, mate. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Chris, uh, perhaps we could kick off. Um, of course, we've started uh, 2022 with a lot of volatility in markets. And I believe, if I'm right, that March may have, in fact, been the worst month for fixed interest in history. Um, can you tell our listeners why that why that was so and how that came about and, and maybe touch on um, how Coolabar has gone along during that period? Yeah, so uh, February and March were two of the worst months ever uh, for Aussie bonds and Aussie fixed income. The <clears throat> fixed rate composite bond index fell almost 4% in March. Uh, I think it was 3.75% negative. Uh, that was the worst month for that index in 33 years. And the uh, floating rate index, which, which is called the uh, Osborne Floating Rate Note Index, it similarly had um, <clears throat> its uh, third or fourth worst month in, I think, 24 years, uh, which is the history of that index. The key drivers of that poor performance um, were really two things. Uh, a sharp widening in credit spreads and a substantial increase in long-term interest rates. David, um, you know, since late last year, uh, we had been arguing that investors should expect both of these things to occur. Uh, and you kind of asked about our performance. So uh, across 
all of our strategies, um, except for our one index tracking strategy. So we run circa 34 portfolios. 33 of those portfolios posted strong positive returns over February and March and in the month of March, importantly. So, you know, I think um, we uh, delivered substantial outperformance over the industry and the benchmarks, but most importantly, uh, generated positive returns in what was the biggest stress test fixed income in Australia has ever experienced on, on record. Coming back to how we did that and, and our views. So late last year, mate, we um, had a very strong view that inflation in the US would be persistent and persistently problematic. Um, we had a view that the market pricing for interest rate increases from the Fed this year uh, was wrong late last year. So the market was pricing in three Fed hikes we were of the view that we were looking at at least six to seven hikes and the Fed needed it needed to get to a neutral or normal cash rate uh, as quickly as it could. Uh, and that neutral or normal cash rate we've been looking for since last year was two and a half to three percent. So we now face a situation where markets um, over the first three months of this year have converged to our view. They've gone from pricing in three hikes to now actually nine and a half hikes. But most importantly, they're pricing in a terminal or, or ending uh, Fed cash rate, or it's called the Fed funds rate, um, of 2.8%, halfway between the 2.5-3 that we were uh, thinking was our central case. This is generally negative for everything. So it's negative for equities, it's negative for commercial property, it's definitely negative for house prices, <clears throat> particularly in the US, and obviously if the RBA follows suit, it'll be negative for Aussie house prices, um, and it's negative for credit spreads um, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, one of those reasons is, in addition to hiking cash rates, um, we argued that central banks would stop buying bonds, uh, which is known as quantitative easing or QE, and in fact would actually start shrinking their bond holdings, so allowing those bond holdings to mature or actively selling them. And we thought that would be negative for credit spreads. So <clears throat> late last year, uh, well, actually really in the first half of 2021, we started getting short credit in our long short credit strategies, um, so we were betting on the value of bonds falling and credit spreads widening. Um, and we built up to about, I think, uh, at its peak, about $5.7 billion of short credit positions. So we're shorting Aussie bank bonds uh, and Aussie bonds generally, uh, and but also shorting uh, US investment grade bonds and European investment grade bonds. Um, in mid-March, we had the view that most of the bad news had been priced into the market vis-a-vis uh, -vis interest rates and credit spreads. So credit spreads we had thought would move to the wides last reached in 2018. And that's what we saw in March in Europe and the US uh, and more or less and to a lesser extent here in Australia. So we monetized about 5.7 billion of credit hedges, uh, which really powered our returns. Um, now, obviously in our long only strategies, we can't go net short. So we we're really hedging those books um, and it was more about offsetting the credit spread widening, which those hedges did quite effectively. Um, and we, we pretty much took all the risk off in mid-March. Why? Because, again, we felt that the bad news had been more or less priced um, in, in terms of interest rates and credit spreads. And it just felt that equities was going to rally. And that's actually what we saw happen. So we started buying credit again <clears throat> in the second half of March. And credit spreads and equities performed really well in the second half of March. Um, into early April. And then we've just seen in April um, these uh, asset classes start to break down again. So we've seen in April, David, equity start to underperform, credit spreads start to widen, and long-term bond yields 
um, increase even further. Now, just on that last point, late last year, we said the US 10-year government bond yield should increase to the levels last seen in 2018, which was about 3.25%. Um, the reason that's important for everyone listening is that is basically the global price of money, that US 10-year government bond yield. It's called the discount rate, <clears throat> and we use it to value the risky cash flows of all assets, property, equities, venture capital, private equity. We were negative on crypto um, late last year, pretty toxically negative. Um, just arguing, and that's not to say you shouldn't have exposure to crypto. Absolutely, there's, there's diversification arguments in favor of particularly crypto infrastructure. But um, the actual levels of Bitcoin at 52,000 US, we thought would come under a lot of pressure when interest rates increase. So when we made the argument about US 10-year yields going to 3.2%, they're actually in December last year at only 1.3%. And they um, have pushed dramatically higher. So in Q1 this year, they pushed up towards 2%. Uh, and amazingly, right now, we're looking at a US 10-year government bond yield that's uh, sitting around 2.8%, 2.9%. So most of that wood has been chopped. <clears throat> Just to finish off, the final, um, I guess, so the first regime change we were short and hedging in anticipation of was high US interest rates, sustained inflation, uh, wider credit spreads, um, uh, much lower fixed rate bond prices, uh, lower equity values, lower crypto values. And then we thought there might be an air pocket of good news because all the bad news was priced and people might kind of go risk on. And we felt that the there is a preternatural or um, reflexive buy the dip mentality that served equity investors well for a long time. So we kind of positioned for that in mid-March. My next big negative regime change is a US recession. We've recently published modeling on this and our modeling suggests that a US recession is likely in late 23, early 24. And as soon as the market starts to turn to think about US recession risks, I think equities will give up the ghost and uh, we'll get some pretty savage uh, repricings of uh, equity risk. That's important for us because some of our asset classes are correlated to equities. So credit spreads can be quite correlated to equities. And, and so we've actually just been um, literally in the last, I would say, a week or two reloading our shorts. So we've started to get bearish again. And, and sorry for the long soliloquy, David, but that was a quick mark to market on what happened, why it happened, uh, and what we're thinking about in terms of the future. So it's all pretty pessimistic, not, not too many places to hide by the sound of it. Yeah, we argued that you can hide in cash. You know, you're going to look at the RBA. The RBA should lift the cash rate to 1.5% by early next year. We think the RBA will cap out at around, at around 125 to 1.5%. Um, there are a few banks that are now saying similar things, but there are other banks that think the RBA will go to 2 to 3% in terms of its cash rate. So imagine term deposits suddenly paying you, you know, 1.5% to 2%, right, a margin over the RBA rate. So we think that cash is going to offer, obviously, capital stability, liquidity, um, and uh, a decent return, not an amazing return, but a, a positive return. And we haven't really seen positive returns from cash deposits for a, a while. Most of them have been near zero. So we like cash. We like floating rate high-grade debt uh, where you've got no interest rate risk. So another two things we did late last year was we lifted the average credit rating in our portfolios from around A to AA to really you know, go into safer, uh, mainly government bonds. And then um, we, we took profits on a lot of our credit and um, really loaded up on cash and interest rate hedge government bonds. So this is the final thing we did was we uh, ensured that all of our interest rate risk in our portfolios was at zero years. 
And what that means is we have no interest rate risk, which basically means in turn, we've got a floating rate portfolio that will track the RBA cash rate with a margin. So the more the RBA lifts cash rates, the better we will hopefully uh, perform. And, um, and that really protected us in Q1 because a lot of fixed income managers were carrying what is called lazy duration risk, as in they might only have had 0.51 or two years duration, but it was enough to torch their portfolios. Um, so where to hide, I think cash, high grade floating rate debt. Um, there is an argument, I think, in the very short term that private credit that's floating rate is an interesting place. Um, you know, my mum's a client of your guys, and I know that she's got a fair bit of you know, metrics and other sort of private floating rate private credit managers. So that, that makes sense in the short term. I am worried about a US recession and potentially, I'm, I'm not worried about an Aussie recession uh, so much in the near term. So I do like Aussie private credit. Um, but that is just, if we did have a recession in Australia and you had private credit, that's something you'd need to be mindful of. Um, and then I think shorts. I mean, you know, I think uh, equity shorts uh, make sense at these levels. I think credit shorts make sense. Um, and I think credit spreads and equities have a lot of negative wood to chop before that, before we see the mean reversion or normalization in asset prices uh, that we, we need to see. I mean, the two, two points on that subject would be the cyclically adjusted PE ratios in the US for the S&P 500 are still at the highest levels since just before the tech wreck. There's no precedent for the price earnings multiples that you're seeing really in the US on a cyclically adjusted basis. And that's all therefore embedding a lot of growth and a US recession would unwind a lot of that. I remember I spoke to an equity fund manager who I won't name, who's a mate of mine. And he said to me two weeks ago, uh, oh, mate, what are your views on rates markets, you know, in the Fed and, and, and you know, how do you see things? And I said, well, I think, you know, the most Fed hiking cycles ended in a recession. I think eight of the 11 cycles have ended in recession. I think that's likely again this time. There is a Goldilocks low probability scenario where we just get a, a kind of perfect normalization in core inflation it comes back to the feds two percent target and everyone's happy and listen i'd be happy if that was the case because if if that happens we, we'll just take off our shorts and get long again um but i think the the higher probability outcome here is a, a u.s recession and crucially i said um well no i said I, I said the first part to my friend that you know i expect higher rates higher you know sustained inflation and the risk of a US recession. And my equity fund manager mate said to me, oh, that's great, because I've got lots of high growth tech stocks that are really leveraged to inflation, uh, presumably because he thinks they have pricing power. To which my response was, um, uh, are your high growth tech stocks well leveraged to a US recession? Mm -hmm. And there was kind of a aha moment. And so I think that um, that's the risk, mate. I mean, if, if, I'm, if I'm focused on two things, it's geopolitics, um, and a US recession, because I think a US recession could be the governing market dynamic for the next year or two or three. Now, before we touch on geopolitics, I'd just like to, you, you spoke about there about property prices and also private debt slash private credit. Um, and, and the property prices are always top of mind of people who live in Australia. Uh, and also more so people who have assets where they're underpinned by property valuations in many cases. Um, I think you've been on record that if we see the RBA raise rates circa 100 basis points, 1%, we're likely to see um, residential house prices off in the order of 10 to 15% or 15 to 25%, I should say. Um, is, that, is that still your case? And, and how are you thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, it's not my, uh, it's not an enjoyable case to enunciate because like I'm long property, I own um, a property on the Sunshine Coast 
in Prigian Beach, uh, probably the cheapest beachside suburb in Australia for what it's worth. And then I also own uh, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. <clears throat> so it's kind of with gritted teeth that I offer those views. It's certainly not advancing my own financial interest in any way whatsoever. But yeah, I mean, we've taken the RBA's house price forecasting model. It's a very sophisticated model that looks at all the uh, different aspects of the housing market, population growth, building supply, uh, interest rates, affordability, et cetera, incomes. And um, that model very clearly says that if mortgage rates increase 100 basis points, house prices will fall uh, about 33%. We think um, that wages growth will support housing valuations a little bit more. Uh, we also think that we'll get a very, very strong, arguably unprecedented, um, uh, uh, unprecedented, and oh, sorry, unprecedented uh, skilled migration. Um, I was actually reading a Teams message at the same time speaking, which is always traffic young players. Um, so I think you'll see very strong uh, uh, net overseas migration into Australia, which will be positive for growth. I think you'll see uh, very healthy wage growth and household income growth uh, juxtaposed against the RBA that will probably almost certainly raise rates a little bit too far. Um, too far for me is probably beyond 125 basis points. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll have to see how far they get, because there's some very interesting nuances that I don't think the market's focused on, David, um, on that topic. But all things being equal, 100 basis points of RBA cash rate hikes, if that translates into 100 basis points of mortgage rate hikes, I think you are all but certain to see 15 to 25% uh, corrections in the value of Aussie national you know, residential property. That includes all capital cities and um, the non-metro markets. Now, a few comments in relation to that. First, uh, since the RBA, so the RBA cash rate was at 1.5% in uh, mid 2019, and they dropped it to 0.1%. Um, it didn't appear that our putative would be want to be uh, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was aware of that. But nonetheless, um, post the pandemic, the RBA cut the cash rate from 1.5 to 0.1. They actually had been cutting it uh, pre pandemic as well. But if we simply look at the house price changes nationally, from the mid-2019 levels when the cash rate is at one and a half, because that's where I think the RBA is going to get back to quite quickly. Um, you know, you had 30 to 35% growth in national house prices. So I think if, and that's all that was all driven by that purchasing power that was facilitated by reduced mortgage rates. So lower mortgage rates means you can buy more expensive homes, all things being equal. If that 150 basis points of hikes is going to be restored, which I believe it will be, then it's reasonable to assume that you know that 30 to 35 percentage point increase in house prices <clears throat> will be given back. But again, the mitigants here are unemployment rates are very low in Australia, probably going to print with a three-handle soon, currently 4.0. So we've got you know, near all-time record lows in, in the, in the uh, unemployment rate. We are going to get this sustained wave of skilled migration into the country. And then household income growth and wage growth should be very, very healthy. So I'm hopeful that um, the drawdown will only be 15 to 25%. Uh, if the drawdown is slow, and these drawdowns do tend to be a bit slow and steady, the slower it takes, the more that the house price valuation uh, correction can occur through wages and incomes rather than prices. Um, and uh, so, so that's, I think, reasonable. Um, we uh, articulated this forecast in October last year in the AFR in my column. Uh, I said I expect house prices to rise by 5 to 10%, and then, us, you know, then, then we forecast this correction after 100 basis points of RBA hikes. Uh, house prices have increased by about 5% since we spoke. Uh, sorry, since um, that October yeah, forecast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we, we, that part of the forecast was, was bang on. And then what we have seen, which is interesting, is in Sydney and Melbourne, 
prices have actually started. Firstly, in November, or from November through to the current day, Sydney and Melbourne prices have not increased, they've flatlined. And actually in February and March, they've started just to, to drift a little lower. Uh, the longer and slower that process, the better for everybody. Um, but we are going to have undoubtedly the biggest fall in Aussie house prices on record. Um, it's not a bad thing. Think about it as, you know, we got 30 to 35% capital gains and we're going to give back probably about half of that. Um, and the other rider just to point out is bank funding costs are increasing. So the, the, the banks borrow money. When, when you invest in a deposit, you're lending money to the bank at an interest rate. They borrow that money and they make a home loan and they're having to pay up more for their deposits and they're having to pay up more for the bonds that they issue and that will be passed on to borrowers. So I actually, David, think one thing that people aren't talking about in markets is that the banks are likely to do quite a bit of heavy lifting for the RBA by unilaterally increasing variable rate mortgages. Mm-hmm. They've been increasing fixed rates. Uh, three-year fixed rates are now around 4.5%, amazingly. You know, it wasn't long ago that you could get a three-year fixed rate below 2%. So we've seen a huge increase in fixed rate um, uh, borrowing costs. But all the borrowing now has switched to variable rate because variable rates are around about two and a quarter at present. Um, I was speaking to a mortgage broker the other day who mentioned that uh, variable rates uh, or his flow, he's one of the biggest mortgage brokers in Australia, his flow has gone from 75 fixed, 25 variable to now uh, 90% plus of variable. Um, so I think that's a big deal. And um, uh, it may mean that the RBA's cash rate, importantly, doesn't need to go to like 150 or even 125. It might stop out at 100 if the banks are just jacking up rates independently to recover their higher cost of capital. But I think on Aussie housing, I would say um, I'm negative over the next one to two years or thereabouts. And then once prices reset, I think we can get constructive again. We track records being actually quite good in that area. So uh, let's see how we go. Well, excuse my, um, I hope this doesn't sound self-angrandizing, but I think quite good is a bit of an understatement, David. I think we've been, I'm joking, we've been, we've called the cycle really well, I think, since 2008. Um, and, um, you know, thus far, this this new cycle, like we were the only guys in March 2020 arguing prices would only fall 0 to 5%, and then they rise by 20% plus post-September 2020, and that's what happened. Um, and I think this new cycle is going to be very easy to predict. Like rate, rising rates are going to be very negative fast prices. Having said that, there are pockets of opportunity. I would just once again plug Perugian Beach. <laughs> what do you own the local store there or something? Anyway, Chris, we'll move on. Um, you touched on geopolitics and, of course, um, you know, it's in the press at the moment and you've written about it as well. How do you see that affecting the Australian economy? Yeah, so, I mean, it's just a massive Herculean topic to wrap your arms around. But um, how, does, uh, how does it affect the Aussie economy? Well, just brass tacks. I'll, I'll deal with the simple stuff first and go into some more complex thoughts. But brass tacks, you know, Australia's net beneficiary of Russia and Ukraine. Uh, we've had a big increase in wheat prices, coal prices, iron ore prices, um, uh, LNG prices. So all of our key exports are huge beneficiaries from this uh, war in Ukraine. Um, uh, and indeed, you know, you've had, I think, more than 4 million Ukrainians uh, flee Ukraine. I think that will only amplify the uh, uh, skilled migration flows into Australia. You know, I have many Ukrainian friends, I'm sure they'll want to be seeing um, you know, their friends and family uh, relocate here. We're actually advertising on Ukrainian job boards for data scientists. So we're actively trying to encourage Ukrainians to emigrate um, to try and help, you know, those displaced peoples. Um, so I would say in the short term, the Russia-Ukraine conflict has been 
uh, a big positive for, for Australia. We've definitely seen a safe haven bid in Australia in, I think, equities and debt. Aussie equities have massively outperformed because of the commodity complex, but Aussie government bonds have also been an incredibly high demand, particularly state government bonds from the Japanese and the like. And I think you're seeing a, quite a few global asset allocators that are looking at Europe um, and emerging market debt and saying, actually, this is not where I want to be right now. Emerging market debt, luckily, get KO'd by higher interest rates. Uh, Europe is a bit of a basket case, always has been, but we're seeing capital, I think, shift out of those domains into the US and into Australia. Um, so I think, uh, frankly, this particular uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict is all positive for Australia. Um, and then we've obviously got now the uh, very, very concerning developments uh, in terms of Australia's relationship with China, more specifically that China's um, signed a security treaty with the Solomon Islands um, <clears throat> to militarise those islands, to allow Chinese destroyers, submarines and uh, fighter jets and bombers uh, to use the Sol Solomon Islands as a base. Um, I'm not sure if many listeners remember, but the, Sol the Solomon Islands were occupied by the Japanese in World War uh, II uh, and uh, much of the South Pacific, including Singapore, uh, and Papua New Guinea were also uh, subject to Japanese occupation for the same strategic reasons that China is actually trying to do security deals with PNG, Fiji, Fiji Timor-Leste, uh, you know, uh, Kiribati, uh, the Solomon Islands, uh, and others I've probably forgotten. Um, and so, you know, the, the Solomon Islands are only 1,752 kilometres from Australia's shores, closer than New Zealand, um, and th this is a devastating blow to our national security. For all the hand-wringing about what, what could we have done to stop them, I mean, they clearly just bribed the corrupt government in the Solomon Islands. And I think Australia and the US was very hard to try and mitigate that, but we weren't successful, um, partly because I think, you know, there is some reticence to play by their rules. We're just not as comfortable bribing other countries. <clears throat> but the consequence is we now have the spectre of Japanese ballistic crews and hypersonic missiles being aimed at Australia from you know, a country that's as close as uh, New Zealand. And so I think this is going to be a massive issue for the election. And it's really about like who people trust to make those key national security decisions, who's going to deliver um, with the actions required to, um, to invest in our uh, security capabilities uh, and also to um, you know, provide some what would be called asymmetric uh, strategic deterrence value. So, you know, one thing that I think Scott Morrison did brilliantly was sign up to ACUS, the new security deal with the US and UK, and commit to buy nine nuclear-powered submarines. This has been talked... I've been arguing we should do this for a decade in the AFR, buy nuclear-powered Virginia-class submarines, which is what, what I think we're going to be buying. Um, and it's a game-changer because it basically gives us a second-strike capability um, to hit an adversary like China um, from... Uh, you know, submarines that in theory can remain underwater for decades uh, that are almost impossible to detect. And, um, and no Prime Minister prior to ScoMo ever had the gumption or the balls to really commit to nuclear-powered submarines. It had always been regarded as taboo for Australia. Um, so that's a small step. We've actually got to get the subs. We're going to get them fast. There's talk about us leasing uh, Los Angeles-class existing boats and getting them here in the next few years, which would be great. Um, but I think it's a, just a game changer for our, our national dialogue that you know, we are really subject to the risk of serious conflicts in our immediate vicinity. And China is hell-bent on bending the Indo-Pacific region to its will. Now, this is something we published a lot of research in, ironically, in October last year. So we'd used 160 years of conflict data, uh, economic data, social and uh, political data, 
to basically provide for the first time, to our knowledge in history, academic research that gave people um, hard empirical probabilities of two countries going to war over a given forecast horizon. So we use 10 years. And um, uh, you know, in the case, now unfortunately that data set ends in 2020. So we, our models don't have any benefit of all the increasing tensions between Russia and Ukraine and China and the US since 2020. But they, they handicapped the probability of war between Russia and the Ukraine at one in four and one in five. So that was very elevated already uh, and a good signal. Uh, and they put the probability of conflict between uh, China and Taiwan at about 74%. And the probability of conflict between China and the US is about 45%. And, and this is the first time any academic research has used advanced statistical methods and actually artificial intelligence or machine learning to, to produce these probabilities. Um, so with this is something I think we've been warning clients about for years, but really thumping the table on over the last two years. And with Russia and the Ukraine and now um, China and Australia and China and the region more broadly, we're definitely seeing these risks come home to roost. What does it mean for portfolios? Not much, to be honest, until you know, until literally you know, ballistic missiles are being fired from vertical launch tubes. Um, markets tend to ignore this stuff. And we saw that with Russia and the Ukraine. It was only really when hostilities broke out that you know, markets started to freak out. But I think for investors, you need to have portfolios that are resilient to these conflict risks, portfolios that can get short, portfolios that are liquid, portfolios that are agile and that are allocated to assets that will uh, at least preserve some value in the event of, you know, the spectre of what could be World War III. I mean, very seriously, we've got, you know, Peter Dutton, the defence minister, saying prepare for war. I mean, this is, um, you know, we're on the cusp right now with Russia and the UK and uh, Ukraine and China and Taiwan. It's very, very serious stuff. I know some other managers in Australia have had different views because they've been long Chinese equities. I find that anyone who's defending or who's, who's poo-pooing these risks or who poo-poo our arguments, every single one of them has been conflicted. You know, they're long to the Gill's Chinese equities or they've got a business that's, that's um, you know, heavily dependent on Chinese support, whether it be Chinese supply chains or Chinese export markets. So, yeah, it's an interesting one, mate. Well, I, I hope the models which you're saying the data only goes up to 2020 and I can only assume your position is that the risks have only in, increased since then. 100%. Uh, that, uh, that, you know, that, we, that doesn't end up being the actual case um, and it de-escalates. Um, before, we've, before we wind up, I think I'd like to just quickly touch on, I, I've never seen over the last 12 months um, so many prominent Australian money managers um, struggle um, and we've seen some well noted in, in the media managers who have been very prominent um, and even featured in this podcast in, in the past um, really have struggles with dealing with the attacks that have come from media and other various sources. Um, how, how do yourself and the Coolabar team think about that and or manage that type of risk? Yeah, it's funny. It's actually come up in our risk and compliance committee meetings and our board meetings <clears throat> on many levels. You know, the first is what are the lessons from the rise and fall of these money managers? And there seems to be a consistent pattern. Um, so, you know, what lessons can we draw from that? Um, I know a lot of these guys personally, myself, some of them are good friends of mine. Um, and, you know, I think just taking a step back, I mean, I find it also endlessly fascinating to talk to, I've got to say, or talk about um, you know, it's 
the heart of the problem is distinguishing between skill and luck, right? Because if you take a distribution of a thousand money managers and you just randomly throw them at a wall, you know, you're going to get, <clears throat> you know, 10 to 100 that are going to be superstars, right? You know, the, the top decile are going to be very good. And there's probably going to be 10 that are the Hamish Douglases of the world. Um, and, uh, but that could all be purely a function of luck. It could have absolutely nothing to do with skill. Right time, right place, right strategy. The asset class performed well. A couple of lucky calls. You get some early outperformance, et cetera. Um, I mean, I know the, the, the guys that have had particular difficulties, I think, in Australia, um, you know, obviously Magellan, VGI, Caledonia, the Charlie Aikens of the world, um, they, they, I think all these guys are very smart and very individually talented. Um, and, you know, most of them had amazing track records um, over long periods of time. And having dealt with some of them personally, yeah, there's no doubt there's a, an enormous amount of skill, uh, an enormous amount of talent, you know, resting between the ears of the individuals in question. So I think there's, there's a, a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, capability. Um, but I do think that when you get a fusion of capability, skill, talent with uh, capricious chance and luck, and that combines to give the impression that you have like this master of the universe, this infallible master of the universe style character um, <clears throat> who's beyond reproach and who has a, you know, all seeing, um, you know, capability to divine our destinies. <laughs> uh, that is a recipe for danger. And, you know, I felt it like, you know, when you, when you feel um, that you're on a, an incredible winning streak, you've got hot hands and, you um, and everything's going right. It's hard. And, and oftentimes, um, you know, when you're on these streaks, it's absolutely because of the analysis. It's absolutely because of the intellectual horsepower you brought to bear. But the counterfactual is it's the absence of bad luck, right? So you might have got everything analytically right, but you still needed, needed I think, uh, you still required good luck to ensure that there weren't other adverse circumstances that conspired to kibosh um, you know, that path. And I think uh, what we've seen in the case of those managers is um, probably, um, you know, some hubristic overreach, which, you know, we're all, um, you know, uh, going to fall foul of. So every money money manager, I think, I, I, you know, everyone falls foul of hubris at some point in time. Um, and it's about, for me, the lesson is just trying to imbue yourself with that relentless intellectual humility that, even if you're getting stuff right, you're lucky because the circumstances were such that you could monetize that opportunity set. And there might be other times, and we've seen this a lot as well, where we get everything analytically right, beyond reproach, like, you know, globally cutting edge analysis. Um, and I can give a specific example from last year, uh, but the circumstances conspired against us such that uh, returns were okay, but they weren't amazing as they should have been. So last year, for example, you know, we had a... Um, a small position in New South Wales government bonds. We thought the budget deficit would be smaller than the market thought, and that they'd issue less debt. The budget deficit was much debt deficit was much smaller than the market was uh, expecting. However, New South Wales came out and basically announced a debt issuance program that was more than double what the market uh, was forecasting, and that pushed their spreads aggressively wider. 
to make matters worse, <clears throat> they didn't explain why they wanted to issue all this debt. They literally offered no real analysis or explanation. So we unraveled it. We were the first to do this and figured out that they basically wanted to raise extra debt to give it to their internal money manager, T-Corp, to pump the stock market. And the whole edifice of this strategy was predicated on the idea that interest rates are very low. They'll stay low for the foreseeable future. Equity prices are likely to increase. And so if we run a huge levered equity carry trade, we'll make a, make a motto. So we are then on an ESG basis as a bondholder uh, and a lender in New South Wales engaged with the government said, listen, we think this is totally inappropriate. You're running a leverage, he leverage hedge fund strategy with New South Wales taxpayer money. You can't do that. Um, after some conjoling, they eventually came around to our way of thinking. So they dumped the proposal. And they actually had $26 billion in cash saved away for debt repayment. And we said, you should be using that for debt repayment. And they announced that they would buy back $11 billion of their debt with their money. So that was something that we really, um, in an activist sense, engineered. And yet the, the portfolio benefits were still only middling just because of there are a whole bunch of other random, there was the COVID lockdowns and then we had a huge blood and swap spreads. And there have been other circumstances where analytically we'll do something similar and the portfolio benefits will be massive. So February and March was a good example. And we put in these huge short positions. Uh, semis were the best performing spread asset class pretty much in the world in February and March, whereas credit was getting hammered. And, and so everything worked out perfectly. But I think the takeaway here for investors um, both clients and managers, is a fewfold. It's a very, very difficult position to be in where you're mark to market every day um, on your performance and you know, you're either a winner or loser based on, on that kind of myopic marking to market. Um, and so there's obviously a time horizon question here, like what are the right horizons to judge investment performance? Most people recommend multi-year periods. Um, but I, then I think the bigger issue and the biggest lesson is this masters of the universe mentality um, or complex that you get where you have a lot of success, you raise a lot of money, um, and you've um, had, a, had a bunch of bets, uh, active bets where you thought the market's wrong and you're right and you've been vindicated, that can, I think, um, embolden hubristic overreach. I think we've actually, a parallel, funnily enough, is what's happened with Putin in the Ukraine. So Putin throughout his entire career was brilliant, never really made a mistake. It was just a seamless rise and you know, his key objective function is to maximize the value of his power and money, right? Or to maximize his power and, and the value of his money. And it's it's been, I think, a you know, an extraordinary political story up until the Ukraine. And come the Ukraine, he clearly engaged in massive hubristic overreach, massively underestimated um, you know, the, the resistance from the Ukraine, um, the fortitude of their forces, uh, the quality of the equipment they would receive. Uh, I think importantly, the incredible full spectrum, unprecedented sanctions applied eventually by the West. Um, and then he underestimated or sorry, overestimated the power and strength of his own forces, the morale, the quality of the equipment, et cetera. Um, so, so I think, you know, you see leaders uh, across the spectrum uh, fall foul of um, these same problems and it can be fatal. So for Putin, it could be fatal. For some of these money managers, it could be fatal. And that's why I think just that the mentality you have to adopt, like I, I'm, I'm now scared to even celebrate wins. It's very hard. I mean, somebody once said, you give yourself 24 hours, and that's more or less what I do. If, if we get something right and it's been extraordinary, I like to kind of just savor the moment and think, well, we put a lot of hard work into that. Yes, we got lucky um, you know, with the absence of you know, conspiring um, you know, exogenous shocks. 
that allowed us to monetize the position. Um, but you know, the hard work paid off, and and to give ourselves a bit of a, a pat on the back. But you know, within six, so within you know, uh, one to two days, I think you really need to lift yourself out of that mindset completely and understand and appreciate that. You could have had all that same analysis, but the circumstances did conspire against you, and um, and and the, and the outcomes could be terrible. Uh, you could have you know quite parlous performance. So I think really it's about humility. I think humility is different to conviction. As money managers, yeah, if you're an active guy like us, we have to have conviction in our views. And you know I think in the case of myself, I probably come across as a high conviction personality. But I think what we have within our, our staff, our team, so I have 36 executives in my team, 15 analysts, eight portfolio managers, five of those guys have PhDs. I think we have 13 quants in total. But for us, it's about you need to search for the truth in an unrelenting fashion. And, and so that conviction never su- survives a debate or test that will present a new set of evidence or information that supplants your priors. So whatever the priors were that supported the conviction, if we get new evidence and information, then that conviction evaporates instantaneously. There's no ego invested in ideas in our team. And the same is uh, you know, true, I think, in terms of the mentality you need to take to, take to portfolios. You can't, um, you know, like inflation in the US is a great example. You know, yes, we thought it would be persistent and it would be a problem in 2022. But the truth is, as we stand here and now, we think it will be um, uh, continue to be a, uh, a persistent and prolonged inflation cycle. But we don't know. Um, there's you know, absolutely possibilities that it could mean revert much more quickly than we expect. Um, I think that's the Goldilocks sort of outcome, and, and hopefully that is the case. Uh, but we're very, very open to the market telling us, you know what, you've got it wrong on core inflation for whatever reason, automobile prices are slumping and, and we're going to zoom back to 2% pretty quickly and, and the Fed won't need to go past 25 and it'll all be pretty benign. So it's just humility and, and divorcing your sense of self, your ego, your psychology from the ideas and the conversations and the analysis that form the basis of those decisions. The decisions need to be intellectually as pure as driven snow. Um, and I think where managers have had problems has occasionally been because of, you know, hubristic overage. Chris, thank you very much. It's a fascinating subject. Um, I enjoyed addressing it with you. Time has got the better of us. Thank you very much for joining us at Inside the Rope. Thanks, brother, and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to engage with you, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.